Welcome, we've got a great treat today. We've got Lynn Alden. She is an expert on economics, um, financials, does a bunch of work, um, an analyst in a lot of these uh, really highly complex areas um, like macroeconomics and then diving into certain weeds and stuff. And so I'm probably not going to do a very good job of explaining all your background. So Lynn, maybe if you want to describe a little bit of uh, some of your expertise and where you spend a lot of your time researching and producing um, analysis and stuff. Sure. Yeah. So thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, so, uh, you know, my name is Lynn Alden, uh, and my background is a blend of engineering and finance. Uh, so I started out more in the engineering uh, industry. Uh, then I kind of blended, uh, you know, into finance by uh, focusing on a master's of engineering management, where I, you know, I, I brought in engineering economics uh, to my more technical background. Uh, and then I branched out into uh, investment uh, analysis uh, by applying that quantitative background uh, to financial markets uh, rather than just uh, in the technical industry. And uh, as it pertains to uh, macroeconomics, a lot of what I focus on is first principles. So going back down to the, to the base numbers, you know, uh, looking back over the past century and seeing how kind of major policy shifts uh, from monetary policy or fiscal policy uh, react. And a lot of my uh, kind of framework is from the perspective of control systems. And so in engineering, you know, you have a control system that might be, for example, like a thermostat. So it senses the temperature and if it, if it goes, you know, above or below a certain band, then you get a policy response from the thermometer to adjust the temperature back down to that band. And that's in many ways how, how kind of global macro forces play out uh, because when certain things kind of break out of their intended band, then you get an associated policy response. And that's a lot of things, uh, investors often miss that. Uh, and it, so kind of looking at the full system, like a big kind of multivariable control system is, is kind of a fresh perspective and one, one thing that I try to emphasize. Interesting. So you're bringing in a bit of that social and political element in a lot of your work. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I fo primarily focus on the numbers, but uh, you, mm -hmm. when you when you go back in history, it's always good to have a, a good historical context for what's going on to see why some of the numbers changed. Why were some of the policy responses different than other policy responses? What were the incentives at the time? Things like that. Yeah, I think that's so important because we, we talk with a lot of um, experts in certain fields like social sciences or, or say history. Um, and then practitioners who are managing money and that, that's what they do. And I find that sometimes people are so good in their specific area, but they're unwilling to kind of look outside beyond that. And, and practitioners will be agnostic to politics, which I think is a good thing in most parts, but they're, they don't bring in say the dangers that populism or social uprisings might play into that economic framework. It sounds like you kind of spend some time thinking about those things a bit, which is pretty fascinating. Um, so maybe maybe let's start, I know you've done a lot of work with the petrodollar system. I think for most folks, what does that even mean? Is that just an oily dollar? Like, what is this? Perhaps um, I've, I've had Brent Johnson speak a bit about the different um, systems we've had. So maybe if you could just do a real quick breeze through of um, the gold standard Bretton Woods system, how these have brought us to today, and then we'll dive a little more into the petrodollar system. Yeah, sure. So, you know, prior to World War II, uh, you know, a lot of currencies are on a gold standard system where banks and central banks uh, maintain gold 
issue the currency, uh, you know, that that basically represents uh, re redemption for gold, and therefore is, is pegged to gold in some way. Uh, and during that earlier time frame, you know, mostly had the United Kingdom as the most dominant fee uh, uh, paper currency, uh, but you know. The system is relatively decentralized, uh, but then starting in 1944, the world shifted to a Bretton Woods system. And so in that system, uh, the United States, you know, due to World War II, a lot of countries shipped over their gold to the United States. Also, the United States, uh, you know, uh, confiscated gold from its citizens. I mean, they paid for it, but the, all, all citizens had to turn their gold in. And so the United States had had by far the most gold reserves. And to have a system of kind of neutral exchange rates, fixed exchange rates, uh, the dollar was pegged to gold and most other currencies were pegged to the dollar. Uh, and so that was the system that was in place for several decades, starting in 1944. Uh, and, you know, that had a, a variety of benefits and costs, uh, but eventually the system broke down because the amount of dollar liabilities far exceeded uh, the amount of gold that the U.S. could, could reasonably back those dollars with. Uh, and so in 1971, uh, President Nixon closed the gold window, and we shifted more towards a, a, a completely global fiat currency system. So every currency in the world is is paper, it's free floating, uh, and it's not really pegged to anything in particular. However, in the, 19, in the early 1970s, uh, you know, a variety of foreign policy decisions led to uh, the creation of the next system, uh, which is the petrodollar system. And under that system, there are mul multiple countries that produce oil have agreed with the United States to only only sell their dial, uh, their oil in dollars. Uh, and so what that means is that even if France, for example, buys oil from Saudi Arabia, they pay in dollars, even though it's neither of their currencies. Uh, and so that that does a couple of things. One is uh, it creates global demand for dollars because uh, you know every country in the world now needs dollars uh, it, because they need oil. And most you know most of the places to get oil only sell it in dollars. And so many of those other countries also sell their international wares uh, in dollars so they can get dollars. Uh, and so you have this, uh, the dollar basically extends itself uh, so that it's used for a bigger percentage of global trade uh, than the United States as a percentage of, of global GDP or as a percentage of global trade. Uh, and so that is basically, you know, over this kind of period, that, that's kind of been the empire component of the United States. Uh, and in exchange for having that exorbitant privilege, the United States has a couple burdens associated with that. So, you know, the, the one of the reasons that the, the the United States is able to enforce that arrangement is the large uh, blue water navy that the United States maintains. And so, they can engage in conflicts. They can protect global shipping lanes, uh, and sometimes, you know, they can they can force countries to to try to go around that system to stick with the system. And so, that opens both good and bad, uh, you know. Uh, uh, actions uh you know military actions or sanctions things like that uh and so that that's kind of where we are now which is we're still in the petrodollar system uh but there are cracks that are starting to show up it's interesting i mean it seems like in its, in its inception it was an incredibly elegant solution to creating a global economic foundation that was playing by your rules with your currency and so we fast forward to today where it's it's not in the favor of the US um, and and maybe we can walk into that a little bit um, because you mentioned in the um, Bretton Woods system, it broke down because an inherent flaw where there was too many liabilities and so the US is just paying out its gold and it was going to defund the entire nation, it was gonna lose its, um, Gold reserves, and so can can we look at a little more? What's that inherent flaw of the petrodollar system? 
that we're, we're kind of really seeing some cracks form today. So the flaw of the petrodollar system is that in order for the entire world to use dollars in order to buy and sell oil, you need to have a lot of dollars out there in the global economy. Uh, and the main way that the, the dollars get out there is that the United States runs persistent current account deficits, uh, which are what most people would know as trade deficits, plus some other uh, variables thrown in. And so basically, the United States is in a perpetual position where it consumes more than it produces uh, and it exports a lot of dollars to the rest of the world. And early on in that environment, that that was, you know, uh, the the, co the the cost of that did not outweigh the benefits. So we got, you know, what what some uh, have called the exorbitant privilege. But over time, the benefits have been relatively static, while the costs have continued to grow. So the United States has has rapidly drawn down its industrial base, uh, more so than many other developed countries, such as Germany or Japan. And so we we have exported our supply chains to emerging markets at a much more rapid and thorough rate than uh, many of our other developed peers because we're basically maintaining this petrodollar system and so that has put a lot of burdens uh, on the blue blue uh, uh, collar workers especially and more you know more broadly the entire kind of working and middle class uh, while many many people that work in finance or government or healthcare or technology they've benefited because they haven't really been harmed by some of those forces and so you know it leads to some degree of populism it leads to wealth concentration uh, and so we basically kind of hollowed out some of those things in in exchange for maintaining our our hegemonic status uh, the other uh, big thing that's happening is that uh, so the United States at the beginning of the system was something like 30 or 35 percent of global GDP. Uh, and uh, at, over time, that's shrunk because China grew up very rapidly. Uh, you know, other emerging markets uh, grew up very rapidly. And so now the United States is only 20 to 25 percent of global GDP, depending on how you measure it. Uh, and so basically the, the world is outgrowing the United States in terms of using that one country's currency uh, for a big chunk of global trade and the entire global energy market. Uh, plus, you know, United States used to be the world's biggest commodity importer and, and oil importer, and now they're not. Now China is the biggest. So the, the biggest importer is using the second biggest importer's currency uh, for, for their, mm. their oil imports. And so you open up all sorts of interesting things. Plus, the United States controls the, the flow of dollars. And so they can they can cut off countries and, and, and basically impose sanctions on them uh, to get them to behave according to their will. So when you have countries that are powerful enough to push back on that, they have an incentive to do so. And so what we've seen in, in recent years uh, is that several countries like China and Russia have found ways to go around the dollar-based system. And so you see, for example, trade between Russia and China has largely uh, you know uh, begun de-dollarizing uh, in favor of local currencies and the euro especially. Uh, trade between Russia and Europe has has de-dollarized uh, more in favor of the euro. Uh, trade between Russia and India has as well. And so what we're starting to see around the margins is that we're seeing uh, you know more and more kind of decentralization or alternate payment channels uh, that kind of slowly get around the petrodollar system. So it really seems like it's beginning to there's almost an end in sight externally. There's all these factors, it's not working externally. And then internally, there's, there's an end date. As you say, we can't, we can't hollow out the industrialization forever. It, it's like the gold reserves. It, it's almost, it, in oversimplistic terms, it's math. There, there's an end date, this, this is ending. Um, I, I saw on one of your um, uh, report you recently put out, um, about the petrodollar system. There was a chart where you had the net international investment 
and it I just want to know is is this a trivial anomaly that it appears like an inverted parabola or is that a significant thing where you're seeing a like a, a 60 year um chart that shows something as an exponential curve like that yeah that's a significant thing basically uh you know uh, for a while that was a that was a a, a kind of a, a not changing very rapidly and the united states has a positive net international investment position so for for people watching this net international investment position is a measure of how much foreign assets your country owns uh minus how much of your assets that foreign countries own uh and it's often it can be expressed as a percentage of gdp or in absolute terms uh and so if you run persistent trade surpluses like japan or germany uh, you end up accumulating a, a lot of foreign assets because you, you get a lot of uh, you know dollars and you invest those dollars out in the world. And so you own more foreign assets than foreigners own of your assets. The United States, because we've run persistent trade deficits, uh, we've, we've become the, the world's largest uh, uh, debtor in terms of net international investment position. And one of the largest as a percentage of GDP. So you know back in the, when the Bretton Woods system started, the United States uh, was the biggest creditor in the world. We had a positive net international investment position. Uh, and as the decades have gone by, starting in uh, roughly the mid-1980s, the United States turned negative in terms of net international investment position. Uh, but, it, you know, it only started to go down kind of mo at a moderate pace. And in the past decade, especially, you know, with the rise of China and, and, and a lot more kind of rapid uh, deindustrialization, uh, that's really accelerated. Uh, it's also been compounded by the fact that the U.S. stock market outperformed uh, the broader uh, a global stock market. And so the value of, of our assets that foreigners own has gone up more rapidly than, than the value of, of assets that we own. So there's a, a bunch of factors together that has really kind of made the, the U.S. and international investment position fall off a cliff. Because it really looks like we're getting the meat of that exponential curve. It's kind of frightening. Um, and so that makes me wonder, does this petrodollar system and its and its inherent flaw and, and historically we see the flaws break these long-standing monetary systems does it pose an what we could say is like an asymmetric downside risk to the u.s and potentially an asymmetric upside advantage to others because everyone else only stands to perhaps get a better more equal-ish system whereas the u.s is either going to keep hollowing out its industrialization or lose the main mechanism it currently uses to enact its power, which is its currency and the payment system. Is that a way to look at it, or is that a bit too um, doom and gloom to look at it that way? I think it's one way to work at it. I think, I think the United States has the most polarizing outcome uh, from, from a shift to a new system, because there are some people that would greatly benefit from it, and there are other people that would be greatly harmed by it. Uh, whereas most other countries, uh, you know, the benefits are tend to be more in one direction or the other. And so, you know, when you see when you, when you compare like an empire to just a major country, uh, one of the difference, you know, in the beginning of an empire, uh, a lot of times the 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 benefits from you know having control over many other countries outweigh the cost of maintaining that system. And as you get further into that process, the benefits stay relatively static, but the costs tend to rise. And so in the later stage of an empire, usually the costs begin to outweigh the benefits. And that's kind of where we are with the petrodollar system, where uh, to maintain uh, the, the United States' current hegemonic role in the world, we've had to sacrifice a lot of our domestic vibrancy. Uh, and uh, so if that system were to end, uh, we basically would reduce our hegemonic, uh, our ability to exert global influence and global uh, military power uh, in exchange for potentially, if managed well, more domestic vibrancy. 
Uh, so that could be good for the, you know, the working class, the blue collar labor, uh, but it could be bad for a lot of the groups that have really kind of benefited uh, from this past system. It really seems that this is me as a, as a non-professional in the world of uh, geopolitics and, and also just um, cultural identity, but so I'm going to bring in a little bit of that social aspect here and you tell me if this is not in your wheelhouse, but it, it seems like to me that the, the American, you know, American exceptionalism, American dream, this identity of a linear growth towards progress. And it really has a lot of meaning for, for a lot of Americans. It, it identifies the um, American psyche in many ways. And so choosing it seems like there's two paths forward with this petrodollar system for america it's either keeping the going down the path of trying to maintain empire as you said or choosing a path of economic vibrancy but the the economic vibrancy path would involve purposely giving up that uh identity and that um, mindset which I have a really hard time envisioning Americans doing that, um, even over a six to eight year period. I mean, generational shifts are always happening and will happen at some point, but I just have a hard time imagining that. Do you, do you see that as one of the main obstacles between choosing that path? Are there other obstacles that you think stand in the way of America choosing an economic vibrancy over just continuing to pursue uh, the empire, as it were? I think I think that's absolutely you know the the correct way to view it is that basically uh, what what might be the correct choice is inherently the hard choice to give something up in, in exchange for something else and it's always harder to give up something you already have uh, you know in order to even if it's kind of killing something else you have it can be very hard to see that and to make that connection uh, and especially because you know it's very it's very mathematical focused and it can be hard to really identify and there's always kind of justifications for saying maybe you can have your cake and eat it too maybe you can somehow maintain both. Uh, without sacrifices. And, but, uh, you know, as, as the systems progress, especially in the past 10 to 20 years, where it really started to break down, uh, it's become increasingly clear that, that you'd have to sacrifice one most likely in order to preserve the other. And then that's further complicated by the fact that the, you know, the people in charge that would make decision are in the, the group that generally benefits from the current uh, position. Uh, whereas some of the more populist uh, pushback you're getting against government or against corporations, against you know what what it can broadly be considered the establishment, uh, those are the people that have been more disenfranchised from the system. Uh, so basically, as long as uh, the establishment maintains control, it is really hard to deviate from that course that has really kind of uh, emphasized America's empire status over uh, what is what is purely uh, ideal for the domestic situation. Do we need then a um some some kind of uprising or shift large shift in public opinion to make this happen since it sounds like the established um politicians or i mean that was the platform that trump ran on essentially was doubling down on this idea of american exceptionalism do do we need a really big uh resurgency in this like, different way of viewing ourselves and viewing the world um or is it going to take some outside shock. So maybe those more external circumstances of China, Russia, and these just creating their own system and just leaving us to the side as 
do, do you do you frame it like that at all? Like, is it is it going to be internal, external, or both? Or we just have no idea, and this is just the way the system is, and we have to wait and see how it shows up. I think in the long run, it it eventually gets forced by the external factors. Uh, so you know, what, what, whenever the U.S. is going to decide, uh, you know, powerful nations like China, Russia and most likely the European Union are going to continue to find ways to make systems work for them, especially because all sorts of new technologies, including uh, you know, uh, uh, digital assets uh, and, and kind of different types of payment rails, give them more and more options uh, to, to basically go around the system. Uh, and then it's kind of the US's decision whether or not they want to uh, kind of play along with that and get the most out of that transition, or if they want to fight it uh, every step of the way uh, and even if it, even if they end up in a worse position because they have fought it, rather than kind of preparing for it and and kind of absorbing that and and making the best of it. Uh, so that that kind of second part that comes down to whether or not uh, there is a big uh, shift in public opinion. And I think you know we've already seen early signs of it. I mean, for example, uh, you know President Trump was uh, he, he doubled down on certain things, but he also ran on a, on a more populist uh, you know uh, message. And you know some of the things he's focused on, for example. Uh, is is having fewer international military conflicts. I think we, we've withdrawn some of our uh, military influence from other places, uh, and we'll see if that holds uh, in, in you know, the next administration as well. Uh, but that's kind of been somewhat of a trend shift, uh, and you know, it also you know you can go back to Obama as well. We already started to see the early phases of of kind of a you can call it like a the the country was tired of of, of foreign wars and and foreign and military engagement, you know. And so I think we're already seeing early signs of a, of a public shift towards, uh, you know, renewed emphasis on the domestic situation. Interesting. <clears throat> and so I think another very interesting, um, extremely large cycle and force that you spend a lot of time analyzing is the big debt cycle. And so I think it, it overlays over this petrodollar system and the coming transition we have in front of us. Um, in some ways, seamlessly, it's very it's very fascinating how a lot of these forces uh, join together. We definitely live in an interesting time. Maybe if if you could explain a little bit of what is the big debt cycle, because I know when I was first exposed to this, it made a lot of sense, but I'd never quite thought about the system like this before. Yeah, sure. The, the long-term debt cycle uh, was popularized by Ray Dalio, the founder of Bridgewater. Uh, and uh, so there are a bunch of different ways to think about the long-term debt cycle, uh, but you know, uh, you kind of if you start focusing on the short-term business cycle, that allows you to lead up to the long-term business cycle. So we all know we're all familiar with the five to ten-year boom-bust cycle, uh, and that's you know during periods of good times, you have uh, corporations and households taking on more and more credit, uh, you have you have growth, uh, and but eventually that kind of reaches unsustainable levels. There's too much leverage, there's too much euphoria, there's too much malinvestment. And then either it just kind of deflates naturally or some sort of external shock hits that fragile system and, and forces a deleveraging. And then you get job losses, you get a credit event, it becomes self-reinforcing, and you start to deleverage and unwind a lot of that malinvestment. Uh, and But rather than letting all of that kind of deleveraging happen all the way to uh, you know kind of the baseline, usually you get policymakers come in with, you know they cut interest rates, they do fiscal spending uh, to try to soften the blow. Uh, but what that does, that short circuits the, the, the deleveraging event and allows let uh, dev, uh, leverage to start building up on the system again. And so you never deleverage all the way uh, and you get interest rates that are lower. So when you string multiple of those short-term business cycles together, 
you get lower and lower interest rates, so lower highs and, and lower lows in terms of interest rates, and you get higher and higher debt as a percentage of GDP over time. Uh, and that, you know, that that's a policy that can continue for several decades until interest rates run into zero, or in, in some cases, slightly negative, as we've seen recently. Uh, and when that happens, policymakers don't really have much more room to cut interest rates uh, or to stimulate in, ter in terms of monetary policy. And debt in that system tends to be extraordinarily high uh, because interest rates were so low and allowed uh, all sorts of entities to support very high uh, levels of debt relative to income, relative to assets. Uh, and so when you get to the end of a long-term debt cycle, that's a much harder situation to deleverage uh, because it's it, as it's so leveraged that as it deleverages, it starts to collapse everything. And so that's what we saw, for example, during the Great Depression. Interest rates hit zero, debt was extraordinarily high, and the system basically starts eating itself and just kind of creates a vicious cycle where it gets worse and worse. Uh, and usually what happens at the end of a long-term debt cycle, which makes it different from a short-term debt cycle, is that uh, usually you get a currency devaluation. So one of the, the main kind of methods used to deleverage that is that instead of deleveraging nominally, uh, you, you end up printing a ton of money and deleveraging uh, you know, in, in, a, in a nominal sense relative to how much money's in the system. Uh, and so uh, that tends to be what, what marks the difference between a long, the end of a long-term debt cycle and the end of a short-term debt cycle. And at the end of the previous long-term debt cycle, which was uh, in the 1940s, that's when we started this current global monetary system of the, you know, the Bretton Woods system that eventually became the petrodollar system. So basically, the the mantle of the of the, you know, the world's reserve currency passed from the United Kingdom to the United States, uh, just because, you know, going through that long-term debt cycle while you're the global reserve currency uh, generally becomes untenable to all other all the other countries that that hold your 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 sovereign debt, uh, and so uh, as that shift occurs, you often get you know shifts in the global monetary system around it. As, as you're mentioning the GDP to um, money supply ratio, um, can, can you dive into that a little bit more and why this this particular ratio is quite important in, in looking at the uh, long-term debt cycle? Yeah, so there are a couple ways to measure debt. Uh, one of them is debt to GDP. Uh, so that's the amount of debt in the system compared to economic activity. Uh, and that's, you know, that's generally one of the more important ones. Uh, but another one to look at is debt relative to money supply. And the reason that's important uh, is because, you know, policymakers have more control over money supply than they have over GDP. And so that's kind of a measure of the shifting fiscal monetary policy that you see playing out. And so if you look back over time, debt as a percentage of money supply tends to peak uh, right when you hit the zero bound in terms of interest rates. Uh, so that happened back in the 1930s. Uh, and that happened uh, during the, the, the peak of the global financial crisis. Uh, and then when you go into that later stage, uh, that's when you get generally a private sector uh, deleveraging, uh, where the public sector, however, continues to lever up. And so that's when you get that more inflationary outcome, whereas that the, the private sector deleveraging uh, tends to be more deflationary and tends to, you know, you kind of unwind a banking crisis and recapitalize your banking system. And so it may seem inflationary at first, uh, but it's mostly, I like to call it anti-deflationary. So you're, the, these policymakers are basically offsetting a big bank collapse uh, by printing a lot of money, but instead of that money getting out broadly into the system and resulting in too much money chasing too few goods, a lot of that money just stays internal to the banking system and recapitalizes it. And then it's not until that that second punch later, uh, like we saw in the 1940s and we, what we seem to be seeing here in the 2020s, we start to get the broad money supply going up rapidly because the banking system is already uh, you know, uh, uh, well capitalized, uh, but the real economy is still stagnant. And that's when you start to see 
uh, kind of the massive fiscal deficits, the massive monetization of those deficits, uh, and you start to eventually see a devaluation of the currency uh, in exchange for kind of unwinding a lot of that leverage in the system. So are we at a point where the the response is perhaps the the danger to look out for more than the actual deleveraging because they're they're going to respond to the deleveraging by printing so we don't really have to worry about the deleveraging as much we have to worry more about the unknown consequences or not the unknown but the unforeseen consequences of uh the printing it, is is that accurate or is or are there perhaps other worries to, to look at uh, so that it depends kind of what position you're in, uh, because, you know, many people do have to worry about the the deleveraging because they're heavily involved in it. Uh, so for those that are leveraged or invested in leverage entities, uh, it's not the case that every entity gets saved or bailed out. And so, you know, for I like, to, you know, one thing I like to focus on is what happened in March. And so, you know, one of the consequences of, of you know, there being so much treasury issuance and, and, and having so much of that owned by the foreign sector uh, is that. You know, when we had this big uh, solvency event, uh, so I mean, a liquidity event in early March and April, when the pandemic hit, we had a reduction in global trade, we had energy prices collapse, uh, we had uh, offshore dollar-dominated debt became a problem, and so we started to see basically forced selling selling in treasuries. So, so the foreign sector began selling treasuries, uh, U.S. hedge funds started selling treasuries to unwind risk parity, uh, you know, leveraged, uh, you know, investments, and. That created basically a, a, like a, a, an acute liquidity crisis because the treasury market is supposed to be the most liquid market in the world. It's supposed to be, uh, you know, a, a safe liquid investment. But during the heart of that kind of March crash, where everything was going down together, even long duration bonds started going down, uh, and the the treasury market became illiquid. So wide bid ask spreads, uh, and it, you know, the, the Federal Reserve stated that it basically ceased to function effectively. Uh, and so that's when we saw the, the Federal Reserve was forced to come in with aggressive policy response, and they bought a trillion dollars worth of treasuries in three weeks. And they basically reliquified the market uh, because there were just so many sellers relative to buyers. And so the Fed had to go in and, 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 and kind of take the other side of that trade. And so, you know, once it gets up to the sovereign level, uh, you know, it's one of those things where the if there were to be a deleveraging, uh, it, literally, it literally goes all the way up to the treasury market itself, because even even... Uh, you know, entities can't even, uh, you know, hold treasuries because they have to sell their collateral in order to, to remain solvent. Uh, and so uh, that's where basically you get that forced currency devaluation in response to uh, that deleveraging event. In your view, are we still kind of in the thick of the danger zone of we had the flare up in the repo market um, a little over a year ago, last September, and then in March. And so do you, were these still um, precursors to a more main event, or are we going to just keep chopping along, having these blips? The Fed comes in, tries to save the day, but it's just kicking the can. Are, are we just going to kind of live in this in this stuttering phase for a while, and until the currency is is devalued and the deleveraging has just slowly happened, or is it going to play out in a in an actual uh, actual event? I think the repo spike in uh, late 2019 was the precursor event. Uh, so that's the one that it didn't have a lot of consequences for most people. Uh, but for folks that were paying attention to the financial system, it, it, it raised a ton of red flags and, and forced a response by the Federal Reserve. Uh, because if that response was not there, uh, then, this, then the consequences would have been uh, felt by everyone. Uh, and then it was, you know, in March, I think, was, was potentially the main event. So that's when we had, 
you know, the, the pandemic induced liquidity crisis. We had, you know, oil go negative, uh, you know, the next month. Uh, we had all sorts of crazy dislocations in the market. Uh, and that's when we saw that, you know, the, the biggest ever, the most rapid, uh, you know, uh, liquidation, uh, you know, by the Federal Reserve to basically reliquify markets. Uh, now, there is always a risk that there's that there's still like one more big one around the corner. Uh, and I, I think that there's there's risk, uh, you know, here in, in uh, you know, uh, late 2020, early 2021, because we're still going through the pandemic. We still have this, you know, this this was winter ahead of us. Uh, and uh, but I think, you know, my base case is that March really was the main event. And then now I think I think you put it a good way. There's going to be kind of fits and starts. There's going to be sputters along the way. So every time something breaks, uh, the response time is likely going to be pretty quick uh, because you know they're already in that kind of that that kind of uh, that mindset of of supplying liquidity and kind of realizing that the system's so vulnerable. And so I think it's kind of like you 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 can get these kind of like repo spike events where something kind of breaks under the surface, but it doesn't spill out to the degree that it did in March. With all this printing, what is what's the danger of that? I mean, we, we know how it's good. It, it can inject liquidity and, and solve certain things, but what, what, what are the dangers with solving the problems by devaluing the currency? Like what, what do we need to look out for? Yeah. So currency devaluation is one of those things where, you know, it, it's, I've, I've thought of it as kind of like chemotherapy for a cancer patient. So it's often one of the best solutions in a bad situation. So, uh, you know, all the things that led up to that were basically things that happened before. So, uh, you know, by the time it's it's time to do chemotherapy, it's because, you know, the patient already has cancer, uh, you know, maybe other treatments failed. Uh, and so that's kind of the only thing left when you want to, for example, save the bond market, the save the sovereign bond market. Uh, and so uh, basically at first, currency devaluation feels good because it starts unwinding uh, this this debt situation that's built up, uh, you know, for, for decades. Uh, but almost inevitably, Policymakers overshoot that, uh, and the, the the major risk is that you get uh, significant inflation uh, or uh, you know just major debasement of the currency, especially if it's also associated with some sort of shortages. Like uh, you know in the 1970s, we, you know, we had the famous like oil shortage combined with that that devaluation of the currency. And so if you were to get something like that, you could potentially have a repeat of the 1970s or the 1940s, which were these more inflationary decades. Uh, that you know they often had all sorts of policy uh, attempts at trying to uh, control that inflation and to alleviate the supply shortages, and so that that's kind of the main risk on the other side of that. So is it, is it going to take us a, a decade to delever, or do you have any kind of rough timeframes on that? I expect it'll 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 quite uh, quite likely play out uh, throughout this 2020s decade. I, I think this is going to be a long process. Uh, just because, uh, you know, if you look back in, in the 1940s as well, uh, of course, there was the whole war going on. But if you look at just the financial situation itself, uh, you know, that that does take a long time to play out. Uh, so uh, I, I do think that the 2020s is likely, uh, you know, going to be this 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 prolonged period of devaluation. Now, there are there are kind of policy things they can do to potentially make it more abrupt. It's kind of like, you know, they can rip the bandit off, get it over with quicker. Uh, but, uh, you know. Uh, I think that's one of those things where there's a lot of consent. It takes a lot of consensus to do something like that, and so most likely what you're going to see is kind of always uh, the, the the you know the, the basically policymakers are forced to do something when something breaks, and so with that approach, that generally ends up being a process uh, because you're just it's like you're fixing the leaks as they as they happen rather than kind of saying okay we need to just replace the system now. Uh, it's it's more of that kind of a piecemeal uh, method. That's where I guess I have. Um... 
not necessarily the the de the delevering over the decade, but that's where I have a bit of a worry of the of. So we talked about the petrodollar and then this long term debt cycle, and so it sounds like the base case for both events to resolve are from external forces, which when any when anyone forces you to enact change in yourself, it's it's a little more unknown. It's a little more abrupt. It's also a little more agonizing. And uh, it's just generally not as good if you consciously decide to make change yourself and and, and uh, go a different way in life or whatnot. And so my main worry, I guess, we have these two really huge cycles and systems that are in play. You could almost say paradigms in a sense. And it appears like the base case is an external forcing us to switch. And so if these two things are overlaying together, that gives me that gives me cause of concern for the U.S. Um, do you have any specific thoughts on that exactly of how these things are overlaying? And I, and I also know, not to add a third thing in here, but I know that you're familiar with um, Neil Howe's framework of the fourth turning. And so we're in a time of potential turmoil and... Uh, reconstruction of the fabric of society as it were but so how do you think about these really big forces coming into play right now and uh, a potential um, moving through a resolution uh, so the concept of a fourth turning uh, popularized uh, by the demographers including Neil Howe uh, I think is really relevant to this period in time and you know it's amazing in some ways how uh, uh, you know how much foresight that book had at predicting some of the events that are now playing out uh, and uh, so with a fourth turning, uh, that's where you have kind of a, you know, uh, the institutions that have, you know, been in, established over the past several decades uh, generally get, you know, torn down or reconstructed. Uh, and you start, you know, with a kind of a, a fresh slate uh, going forward. And the, the challenge there is that, you know, when, whenever you're changing something dramatically, you're tearing something down and building something new, uh, that's a really kind of risky period. And so that can, that can, you know, you can you can tear something down and build something even worse. For example, that goes in a very dark direction, uh, or or you can tear something down and, and fix the problems and and build a, a more rational system uh, and go forward. And that's kind of the the next era of growth and improvement and prosperity. Uh, and so you know I think all of us want that that second to happen. We want to basically you know fix whatever kind of structural forces are in the system and and then kind of restart another period of, of, of growth and another uh, first turning and another kind of a period of, of, of unity. Uh, however, you know, there is always the risk that you go the other direction. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to be a policymaker in this environment because, you know, you have, in some cases, you have, you have external forces going around uh, the, the U.S. petrodollar system. And then within the country, you have populist pushbacks against some of the domestic ramifications of the petrodollar system. And so there are, you know, uh, there's basically just really challenging trade-offs to make, uh, and uh, you know some of the more more kind of powerful methods uh, end up being unpopular or impossible to get through. Uh, you know your other politicians, and so uh, it's one of those things where it's just a really kind of fragile time for many people, and it it, it can work well for people that have that kind of know what they're going through, then have the resources, uh, but it can be really challenging for people that just haven't been able to build up the resources that have been on the kind of the wrong side of this policy. And that feel like a lot of this is outside of their control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's a it's a wild time for sure. We're all trying to make sense of it, I think, and and that's a big part of what we're trying to do here is talk to a lot of different folks and and try to get opinions and perspectives, and understanding of what what do we see, what might be coming, because 
at least for me personally, I find it so harder now. I don't know if you have this at all, but with with the way our world works and the way information works, it's very difficult, I find, to really try to get your finger on what's actually happening as opposed to what's a blending of certain narratives overlapping with other narratives. And it can be very confusing and it, it can be very easy in one way to look at what's happening now and be like, that's it, we're going to a civil war, the US is gonna decline, there's, there's nothing for tomorrow. But in the other way, it's really easy if you're putting your energy towards it, you can just be super optimistic and, and kind of uh, push all that negative stuff away and kind of bury your head in the sand as it were. And so, yeah, I don't know, it's very challenging to try to find what's actually happening and, and try to get a beat on where I'm gonna be heading. And, you probably have a bit of a, a better time with that because a lot of your work just does with it deals with numbers instead of the messiness of politics and, and uh, social turmoil. But so maybe if if you could overlay a little bit for us, you 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 mentioned it, but perhaps flush out a little bit more of the way you see the 30s and 40s and and how you see uh, the teens and then our decade we're going into, and so kind of walk us through what may be the past, how that might shed light on our current time. Yeah, sure. So the 1930s, uh, you, that's when, you know, in 1929, you had the major stock market crash and that, that led, you know, to the Great Depression. Uh, but you, know, you had a bunch of factors there. So you had a ton of leverage built up in the system, including financial leverage. Uh, you had over leveraged banks. Uh, then on top of that, uh, you know, you had a, a farming collapse in the United States. And so a variety of bad farming techniques uh, plus, combined with drought, led to the Dust Bowl. Uh, so we had a, a breakdown in, in farming production, and that displaced millions of people, put them into dire dire poverty. And so, uh, and, and a lot of that kind of those farm loans uh, and stuff contributed to the overall debt bubble uh, popping. And so that was kind of a, a, just multiple horrible factors coming together once. Then you also you had a, a you know like a, a trade war, right? So you had uh, tariffs and and just kind of international competition regarding imports and exports. And so that was a perfect storm. Uh, and so in the 1930s, uh, you had a major bank collapse. So, so literally thousands of banks went bust. And because there was no FDIC insurance or anything like that, broad money supply actually just went down. So the, the broad amount of money in the system, so savings accounts, checking accounts, uh, you know, about a third of that just vanished uh, just because the, the entities kind of backstopping that just went bust. Uh, and uh, so eventually what they did was they devalued the dollar relative to the gold peg uh, and uh, that allowed uh, the bank systems to be recapitalized. Uh, and so you, you got a, you know, in the early part of the 1930s, you had a big uh, deflation event. And then after that gold peg was devalued, you got a, re a sharp rebound in inflation and asset prices. Uh, however, you know, because there's so much destruction in overall net worth and because a lot of that uh, just went to recapitalizing banks, you never really got serious inflation in the 1930s. Like the whole, if you look at the whole decade, it was very low inflation. Uh, of course, it's divided into the deep deflationary part and then kind of the moderate reflation part. Uh, but overall, that was mostly, uh, you know, in, in banking systems where a lot of the changes happened. And then in the 1940s, the United States, have, uh, you know, had the external threat of World War II. And so they were basically forced to run absolutely massive fiscal deficits. Uh, and because there was, you know, not enough buyers of those treasuries, uh, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, ended up buying a, a very, you know, significant percentage of those treasuries, and they also introduced yield curve control to keep uh, yields on those treasuries below the inflation rate. 
And so that's where you got that kind of major inflationary currency devaluation. So money supply grew very quickly uh, and cash and treasuries and things like that failed to keep up uh, with, uh, you know, uh, consumer price increases or the, or the, 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 the increases of a- asset prices, real estate, commodities, things like that. Uh, and so if you fast forward now to the 2010s and the 2020s, uh, so, you know, in, in 2008, we had the global financial crisis uh, and it was, you know, really kind of centered on this U.S. Uh, housing and, and banking situation. So in many ways, uh, that uh, 2008 event uh, looked a lot like what happened in the late 1920s and early 1930s, where you had that big kind of private sector deleveraging. And so if you look at, for example, U.S. Uh, uh, debt to GDP, uh, that went down. So they, they kind of peaked around that 2008, 2009 timeframe and then started going down uh, because people, you know, they lost their homes. They they had, they were basically forced to deleverage. Uh, and then, uh, so you had that that long period of, you know, quantitative easing, which is basically the equivalent of, of reducing the gold peg, essentially. So the Federal Reserve bought a lot of the assets from the banks, uh, you know, with basically newly created bank reserves. And so, you know, banks were recapitalized. Yeah, but a lot of that money did not get out into the broad money supply. So you had a, a still a pretty low period of inflation. And most of that inflation showed up in asset prices or things that can't be outsourced, uh, whereas technology and outsourcing uh, still kept you know commodities cheap and still kept uh, a lot of our manufactured goods uh, cheap. And so you didn't get that broad uh, price inflation. Now, in the, 19, uh, in the 2020s, uh, in some ways, we're starting to mirror the, what happened in the 1940s. And so you know, we've been in this kind of period of slow growth. Uh, inflation, uh, low inflation. And so, but then we get kind of like a war, but instead of a war, we get a pandemic. Uh, and so we already had this fragile situation, much like they had in the late 1930s. Uh, and then they're confronted by this pandemic. And so they do massive fiscal spending uh, just because, you know, so much of the population, so much of the corporate sector is already on the brink of insolvency anyway. Uh, and so that's when it's kind of like if they don't do that, that's when you get dislocations in the treasury market. Uh, you get all sorts of kind of issues that go all the way up to the, the, the kind of the sovereign itself. And so they do this kind of massive fiscal response that a lot of it's monetized by the Federal Reserve. Uh, and so you see that rapid increase in the broad money supply, a lot like the early 1940s. Uh, and so the big question now is what's going to persist? I mean, if that were to persist for several years in a row, you would likely see a, a higher rate of inflation. Uh, and uh, at this point, it seems very difficult for them to unwind that massive fiscal spending, especially because demographics have become very top heavy. Uh, so a lot of our uh, fiscal deficits go towards entitlement programs. Uh, and so my expectation is that the 2020s are likely to play out, you know, hopefully in a, in a lighter way compared to the 1940s, but in a directly similar way where you have, you know, a very fiscal heavy environment, very large fiscal deficits with a lot of those deficits monetized by the Federal Reserve and a sharp increase in broad money supply, and then probably eventually, uh, you know, uh, an increase in, uh, you know, actual consumer price inflation across the board. And then most likely some degree of yield curve control to maintain, you know, uh, cash and treasury yields below that inflation rate. I'll bring a little bit of the social component in here because I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And I I know you spend the majority of your time in that more monetary and uh, economic world, but so, the the comparisons are uncanny for sure and so it, it, it's it's super great to have folks like you studying these periods and applying them to now and i wonder what are your thoughts on because there's some differences socially when when we had a war in the 40s the entire nation galvanized behind a central goal and they were willing to take huge economic hits they're willing to buy bonds that they knew were going to yield uh, negative real rates. 
and and everyone collectively got together and also it uh, recatalyzed and, and um, created an entirely new uh, industrial engine for the nation. And it gave the U.S. at the end of it a, um, a platform to enact their power via the um, monetary systems we spoke about earlier, the U.S. dollar and all this stuff. And so when I look at those uh, systems now, it seems much more it's very different. The um, We're super divided. Some of us don't even believe in the virus. We definitely aren't going to be willing to take economic hits to um, help enact these changes. So do you, do you, when, when you apply these things to that framework, does it, um, does it impact it much or, or, or the way you see it is the monetary stuff so big that you know, listen, we're going to devalue no matter what, and whether the country's for us or against us, these things are probably happening. I think the devaluation is likely to play out regardless, uh, just because as as policymakers break things, you know, as things break one at a time and policymakers come in to basically address that with liquidity, I think over time that spills out and you get more and more of a currency devaluation through the decade. Uh, now, to the point about, you know, how unified we are, if you go back to that, you know, that, that, Great Depression period, uh, you also had that uh, situation of rising populism uh, against the establishment. And so in that case, uh, you know, they did eventually sort things out and they got on that unified track where a, lo- a large swath of the country agreed on having a certain direction. I, and so you know, I talked before about, you know, fourth turnings are about transformative change and that change isn't always a good thing. And so the fact that, you know, the, the country's more, uh, you know, separated now or polarized now than, than most times in, in U.S. history, uh, that potentially increases the odds that you get a transformation that's that's not good. That, you know that, that we're not up for it. That we don't kind of unify around a, an effective uh, you know uh, uh, process of, of of fixing that situation, going to the next situation. And so I do. That is something I'm monitoring, and something that I'm as I you know as I watch these risks unfold. Uh, and it's also why, for example, in a portfolio, I like to have global exposure rather than you know put you know all of my assets benefiting from how one country is going to navigate it. And that's you know that's part of what makes the situation so much different is that, you know, technology gives us a much more globalized situation. Uh, and so, you know, it's going to be basically a test to see how multiple of these powers go through it because, you know, in addition to the United States going through this process as the empire, we also have, you know, Europe going through their biggest test ever for the Euro and the, and the European union as a whole, we have Brexit, we have the, you know, the, some of the Eurozone uh, crises in terms of sovereign debt levels, uh, you know, between the North and the South. Uh, and so some of these big regions of power, are going through some of the biggest tests they've had in decades. Uh, and I think that that social element is always the hardest part to predict because you can see how the numbers are going to play out. Uh, and But some of those variables uh, can play out poorly or or, 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 or very well, uh, depending on some of the policy choices that happen and how kind of unified uh, the populations are around achieving effective outcomes. I'd like to pull out a little bit from uh, totally US-centric and I know that you read a bit of history yourself, and and that's a lot of your work that you do. And so the the book Lessons of History, I I saw you quoting it earlier, um, in some of your work. Whether it's from that or not, what's what's just like a moment in history, going back, you know, perhaps more in the 1930s or 40s, that somewhat overlays here that you find either just anecdotally interesting or. Co- quite actually telling to the moment we're living in now any kind of like uh moment in history you think is quite interesting compared to today 
Uh, so going back about 2,600 years ago in, in ancient Greece, uh, you know, uh, from the book Lessons of History, they had a really good description of, uh, you know, how Salon handled that. And so basically you had a situation we have now, like you had a rising populace against an establishment. You had, you had very strong wealth concentration. Uh, and, you know, what you could eventually, you can kind of call it uh, cronyism, right? So uh, that's kind of the, the, the kind of the end state of the long-term debt cycle. Whereas, you know, you have what starts out as a, a, a good economic situation, but those in power, you know, eventually get more and more power and then they use their power to get more control over politics. Uh, and then those that are, you know, are without power, then, then they get politics pushed against them. And so they're even less power, uh, and except for the fact that they're in greater numbers. And so you start to see that, that really kind of strong uh, pushback between kind of the, 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 the elite that control a lot of the, the political influence, the, the, the monetary influence, and then the workers that are greater number, but less individually powerful. And so uh, back in that period, you know, Greece was at risk of, of tearing itself apart. And that, you know, that was Senate, that particular, particular story took place in Athens. And so that was, you know, that was tearing itself apart. Uh, but they, that was an example where they did come together and they basically managed to come through with a moderate situation where they, you know, they elected a, a leader that basically just kind of rationally broke things down step by step and sorted out these problems, even some of the things that, that hurt himself personally, right? So he was rich, but did things that, that kind of alleviated some of the wealth concentration uh, and they kind of fixed some of the injustices without, you know, at the same time, they didn't go to the, some of the extremes uh, that some of the, the revolutionaries wanted. Uh, and, but, you know, some of those extremes would have also, you know, torn Athens apart. And so they managed to thread that needle uh, in such a way that if you go, if you go look at what they did, you could, you know, the types of debates they were having, you could, you could put modern politicians' names on all these things that are playing out. It's like, <laughs> it's literally, it's like literally like happening right in, in Congress now. Like it's the same sort of debates, same sort of, you know, you have different factions. It's all the same groups because it really comes down to, to, to human behavior and, you know, how we kind of operate. Uh, and so that was a successful case where they navigated that well. And it's just funny how literally you can go back thousands of years and all the mechanisms are different and all the specifics are different, but the general kind of uh, trends tend to be the same thing playing out over and over again. Same, same humans, different systems, sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to have to track down some Greek historian and, and dive into that more. Um, so, sounds like we could use one of those benevolent leaders right now. Who knows? Well, the risk is, you know, people, uh, they want to, you know, have a benevolent leader, but then he turns into a malevolent leader and then you're, you can't, you have no recourse. And so that's actually, I mean, that's, that's the biggest trap for how dictators are, are created. You know, they, they present themselves as the benevolent leader they need to break the gridlock or break the indecision. Uh, and so people put all of their kind of power into that one basket and, you know, more times than not, that ends up being corrupted and then you end up basically in a situation with no recourse. Yeah. It, I you said it perfectly. They threaded the needle. Looks like we got to do the same thing. Yep, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining, Lynn. Um, where where can folks find you if they want to learn more about uh, the work you do? I know you do you put out a lot of free stuff, but you also have some more premium services that you provide. Yeah, I'm available at lynnalden.com. I put out public articles and a free newsletter. Uh, we also have a low-cost premium service that comes out with more regular content. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter at lynnaldencontact. Awesome. Actually, so uh, I just got to say, last night I was talking to my dad, and he, 
he he's a bit up to date on this project and i was like oh so i'm interviewing lynn all the it's like no way i'm reading one of her articles right now it, you got it he's like it was amazing <laughs> and so he's he's uh, he's probably right now trying to figure out which one of your premium services to subscribe to he's very pumped <laughs> i'm glad yeah awesome well you have a good rest of the day yeah you too here at the empire's new clothes we believe something big is in america's future but we don't quite know what if you'd like to continue the journey with us, like, subscribe, and let us know who you want us to interview next in the comments below. This next decade is going to be crazy, so join us as we try to figure out what's going on, and I look forward to seeing you next week.